All right, so I'm Ben. Uh, hey, hey, Marty. I lead the elder team here. Um, I hope to, if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you this morning sometime after. I usually hang around back there near the door to try to catch as many people as I can, but I'm um, really glad you're here, all of you. So we're going to be in Romans this morning. We have been in Romans for, this is the ninth week. If you're just joining us, that's, what, that's kind of what we're doing right now. I don't know how long it's going to take. It won't take too long, but it will be after Christmas when we finish. Um, but we're getting into an interesting section this morning that's, that we've touched on a little bit already, which is what's our relationship to the Old Testament law? Okay, what, what is it? But because Paul's been discussing this thing of we're, we're not under the law, which is, which is the, the, the rules that God gave the Jewish people and all of us about how we can approach him and have some kind of relationship with him. And the story of the Old Testament, if I could sum it up very simply, is the rules are too hard, and God is too holy, and even though he gave us very simple rules, just go read the Ten Commandments. Very simple, short, easy to put on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker rules. We can't manage to pull it off. And this is the story of trying and failing, trying and failing, wanting to please God and failing to please God, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so Jesus comes as the once and for all solution to that problem, okay? And, and so the question becomes, the, the, what do we do then now that we're under grace and not under law, what do we do with the law? Do we, do we throw it in the trash and ignore it? What do we do with it? And it actually, it may sound like a very highfalutin theological question, but what I hope to show you this morning is it's not. It actually directly affects how you live, okay? So that's kind of where we're going to be this morning. So we're going to Romans chapter 7. We're going to start with verse uh, 7. We'll do 7 through 13, but I want to give you a little bit of a theological summary so you can kind of have a framework of things to look for here, all right? So there's, we would say there are three uses for the law, three, three ways that the law connects with us now in the New Testament, okay? One is the law is a mirror, two, the law is a curb, and three, the law is a guide, okay? So what do I mean by mirror? We've seen this already a couple of times in Romans, which is it holds up a mirror and it reflects the righteousness of God. It shows you how holy God is, but it also shows you how not holy you are, right? It just, and, it, and it's unrelenting. It is not a funhouse mirror, right? It, it is a clear reflection, and you look at it, and you are faced with, I gave the example of speeding on the highway, and the cop pulls you over and says you're going over the speed limit. He caught you on his radar gun. That is the law, and you can, you can, you can try to explain your motives, but the state trooper doesn't care, does he? He just cares about the speed limit and your speed. Two numbers. Are they the same or is one higher than the other, right? That's all he cares about. That's the mirror. And you can't deny it. It just is what it is, okay? By the law as a curve, what we mean is that actually it doesn't eliminate evil, but it does restrain it, okay? Just back to our, this, having a speed limit does restrain people from speeding. People still speed. 
It doesn't eliminate speeding, but it does cause some people who, even if they're just afraid of the punishment, they aren't going 100 miles an hour, they're going 65 or whatever the speed limit is, all right? And that's what another thing that the law does in our society is it just is a restraint. And third, the law is a guide. It reveals what, please, reveals what pleases God. As people that love him, this is the of utmost, should be of utmost importance to us. What, does, what makes him happy? What pleases God? What puts a smile on his face? What is he wanting from us? Just like if you're married, you want to know what your spouse loves so that you can do that thing so that it makes your spouse happy. But why? Because you love your spouse. Right? That's what the law does. It says God saying, hey, this is what pleases me. And we as Christians should go, well, I want to do that thing <laughs> because it pleases you. All right? In my notes, I gave you some more scriptures you can look at um, outside of Romans. We're going to look at some this morning, but not the outside of Romans one. So if you want to study this more, you can. Um, so let's now, with that in mind, look at verses 7 to 13. It says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, meaning the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the question here is if the law fails to justify and make me righteous, if the, if the speed limit fails to eliminate speeding, then does that mean we should throw the law out? The law is bad. He says, no, the law is good. It's important. We don't just throw it away. Some people want to do that. They want to take the law, ball it up, throw it in the trash, and say this doesn't apply to any Christian anymore. And Paul very clearly says, no, that's not true. So Paul's creating a kind of tension here. He's not saying that the law is bad or that the law no longer has relevance. He's simply saying that it cannot save us. So the metaphor he uses here is sin is the murderer. It's the killer. The law is the murder weapon. And you and I have been killed by it. Okay, That's the thing he's explaining. I think it's a great metaphor. You can imagine a killer. Sin is the thing that's killing you. Sin is the bad guy, not the law. Don't yell at the police officer because he pulled you over and you were speeding. You are the one that speeds. Speeding is the problem, right? So look at verse 14. Paul's going to give us an example, and this is a contentious scripture, all right? So I'm going to walk your way through it so you understand what he's talking about. So the Right here in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So understanding what Paul's about to say in the next passage we're going to read, 
hinges on understanding what's happening in verse 14. Okay? Paul is, is, the question is, is Paul describing the typical Christian life or is he describing a non-Christian? And he says here, he's not talking about a non-Christian. He says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, if you're paying attention in context, he's just been, remember last week, he's been talking about, you know, if you're in Christ, you're not bound to sin. Sin has no power over you. There's life, there's fruitfulness, there's joy, there's all this good stuff in Christ. And in Adam, you were under sin. You were a slave to sin. You, 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 sin has power over you, not you over it, right? And so here he says, well, I'm, under, I'm underneath sin. Well, what is he talking about? Paul is about, he's talking like in a, as a person that's not, I do this all the time in my sermons, and it makes Debbie crazy when she's trying to do sign language interpretation. Because how do you sign that someone is, that I'm sort of pretending to be a different person? And the way you just, it's a tone of voice thing. Well, the same thing's happening here, I believe. So you're going to see this description Paul gives of what it's like to be under sin, under the law, okay? Let's read this. You'll see what I mean. Verse 15 to 25, it says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin is the murderer. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the, this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So we have to remember that Paul grew up as an educated, fully indoctrinated Jew under the under, uh, Old Testament law covenant, okay? And he was one of the best Jews around. He was very good at obeying the law. He knew what this was like, and he experienced this constant try and fail, try and fail. In his mind, he wanted to please God. He, he had the law in front of him. He had memorized it, he had studied it, and he was one of the best. He was famous for being really, a really great follower of the Old Testament law. Yet, he experienced this constant tension. Back and forth, back and forth. I, want, I know what pleases God. I know that I don't please God. And I know what I must do to please him. And I'm trying really hard to please him yet I continually fail to do the thing that I want to do. He is describing, I believe, someone who wants to please God but doesn't have Jesus. He's saying this is what the law produces, is this back and forth, back and forth, try and fail, try and fail. 
This is what it looks like to live as a person that is trying to please God by means of the flesh and not the spirit. And it is a terrible state to be in. This is the words Paul uses to describe this, these two states, flesh and spirit. And when you try to please God under the law, you get a lot of effort and a lot of mental focus and also a lot of failure. But in Christ, you already are the thing that you're trying to be. This is a person trying to be right with God apart from Christ. This is not a Christian under the covenant of grace. This is a non-Christian under a covenant of law. Now, it's tempting, I think, and some people read it this way, well, this is what all Christians should experience. This is the, Paul is not describing the normal Christian life, this try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. If, and what I would say is if, if, if you're like me and you identify with this, okay, there's a real conflict. Do you feel it? Like this is my experience, but this is not what it, I should experience. Okay? So don't use that scripture to say, well, this is what I should experience. Oh, well, shoulder shrug, off we go. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here at all. If you're like me and you identify with this try, fail, try, and fail, then you need to understand that this indicates that you need a greater revelation of the good news of grace in your life. There's a deeper work that the gospel needs to do in your heart and in your mind. So we're going to lean into that because Paul presses into how this works as we move forward through Romans. He's going to say, starting this in a text this morning, which is this part starts with your mind. You need a change of mind. Let's read Romans 8, 1 through 4. Famous verse number one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You don't have to live like that. You don't have to live in the try-fail, try-fail scenario. That's, that's the law. You've been set free from that. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That there's no condemnation is really great news. But verse 4 is also great news. The good and right expectations of God expressed in the law will be met in us. You will fulfill the expectations of the law. That's amazing. It's not just, so what's amazing about this is the law becomes a promise. All those impossible expectations have been met in Christ, and you will see the fruit of that in your life. It will happen. It is not a question, and I hope, or if I try hard enough, it is a guarantee. The law becomes not a curse, but a promise of who you are and who you will be. I think that's incredible. So Paul is not anti-law. Paul fully expects to see obedience to the law and the Christ-like character that the law stands on. And we'll see that more as we go through Romans. But he expects that obedience 
that obedience to depend on the Holy Spirit and not human flesh. That's where it comes from. In this way, the law, that's how the law converts from being a curse to a promise. So how do we do it? Doesn't that beg the question, how does this, how do I do this? I would like to not live in the try-fail, try-fail. I would like to live in the freedom. I would like to see the power of sin, that truth that the power of sin is broken in me, actually exhibit itself in what I look like and how I act. Where does that begin? We see the first clue to that in verse 5, 5 through 11. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So remember, flesh is Adam, it's law, it's sin, right? That's that category on the left side. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So the Spirit would be in Christ, freedom over sin on the right side. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, so he's talking to you. Put yourself in the you. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you're in the word you when he says this. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So let me just say this, pause real quick. You are not sometimes in the Spirit and sometimes in the flesh. You might try. This is, goes back to the, the, the trying to, you, you are dead. The sin, sinful you is dead and you've been recreated. And whenever you try to go and live like a sinner, it is as silly as trying to get a dead body to walk around and live. It will not ever work. Okay? He declares this about you. If you are a follower of Christ, you are in the Spirit. You have been transported into a new form of a, of a being, all right? I don't want to re-preach old sermons, but just reminding you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so listen to this. When he says set your minds on, he's talking about a habitual way of thinking. He says set your minds on the things of God or the things of the spirit, not on the fleshly things, right? He's not just talking about a focus real hard for a minute thing. That word, that phrase is... A habitual, this is the way you think about the world. This is your mindset or your mind frame. This is how you think about everything. It's the operating system that you use to view yourself, to view the world, to view God and everything else. It's your default, okay? So walking according to the spirit and not the flesh begins with a new frame of mind, a new way of thinking all the time, or we could say even a new worldview. There is a perspective on your life and the world around you that is spirit-inspired, and that perspective produces life and righteousness. It's the, the foundational idea of what it means to be led by the Spirit. Is it means to think like the Spirit, to allow your thinking to be spirit-led instead of worldly and fleshly. So producing the behaviors that are in line with the promise of the law begins with agreeing with what the Spirit says and not what your flesh says. 
It begins with allowing the Spirit of Christ to determine what you think and not you. This is harder than it sounds, isn't it? It's one of those things to say, yeah, I, God's in charge. But when it comes to your opinions, especially the strong opinions that you have, everyone in here has got strong opinions about stuff. The fundamental question first is, what does God think, not what do I think? What does God say about this situation or this situation I'm in? What does God say about this truth when I read the scripture and it says something contradictory or even appears to say something contradictory about what I think? What do I do with that? What's my default mode? Is it what God says is true even if it makes me angry or upsets me or even if it confuses me? There's a fundamental thing about being a Christian that means my mindset belongs to him and not to me. This is where your sanctification really begins. This is where you begin to see the fruit expressed in your life of obedience to Christ. It starts with how you think. Do I agree? Am I going to agree with God or not? Sometimes... That's really, it's, it's easy when it's something you already agree with. I'm going to apply this to parenting in a minute, but it's on my mind, so I'm going to say this now. It's, it's, it's one thing for your kids to obey you when you tell them to do something they already want to do. Son, eat that cookie. Yes, Father, I shall obey you forthwith. Right? Easy. But when God crosses your will and you say, no, you may not have that cookie, you must eat your Brussels sprouts. The obedience is harder, and it is the same for us. And is your mindset led by the Spirit? That's the question. Paul never separates the heart from the mind or feeling from thinking. Stop saying we need more head knowledge, and or we need more heart knowledge and not so much head knowledge. That's that's completely wrong. What you think directly affects what's in your heart, and vice versa. So if you think about marriage is another great example. If I don't know my wife, there is information I know about my wife that is very important to how I relate to her. And if I don't know, if I don't ask her things about herself, do I even know her at all? No. Information is part of what we, and what you think about what God says is vital to your relationship with him. There is no such thing as a change of heart without a change of mind. There's no such thing. So I want to give you a couple of examples of why this is so important. Let's just talk about parenting for a minute. If you think in terms of law equals bad and mercy equals good, like it's law versus mercy, it's either God's Old Testament God versus New Testament God. That's a really common thing especially in the in the world when people when atheists get grumpy about christianity it's one of the things they do well the old testament you have two different gods you got the old testament god who's always smiting people and the new testament god who's nice and everybody wants everybody wants a hug from jesus but not a hug from the father in the old testament right but it's not a competition between law and grace if you think that then you'll raise kids that are rebellious unsubmitted and ultimately self-destructive because you have not, have not taught them obedience, right? You have not said there's a law. 
God expects you to obey, not just obey him, but obey your parents. So there's an expectation. And we all know when you fail, that, when you fail to obey, you, it's like the cop just pulled you over. And it stinks to be the dad when you're the, always the cop. When you're the one always saying, son or daughter, I can't pick on just my son. Son or daughter, dad told you to do this and you failed to do it. That's not fun, but that's part of parenting. But there's another side to this. If you think in terms of law only, then you will raise Pharisees that have adopted a veneer of holiness but do not know God. So if you're just law, 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 no grace, no, no, no pathway to redemption, no pathway to restoration, it's just constantly like these are the rules, and you have failed miserably, and you have failed me and God and everyone else, and that's all you ever do is hold up the law and don't hold up Christ and his redemption, then what you end up with most of the time is a Pharisee. And that is not better. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. That's what I'm describing. It's a veneer, a thin veneer on the outside of, I'm a good little boy. I'm a good little girl. I, go, I know all the answers to the Sunday school questions, and I can perform well, but inside I do not know him. And when the world comes along and just rubs a little bit against that child and the veneer is rubbed away, there is nothing underneath. And there's no better than a rebellious, self-destructive kid. They are both awful. And so as a parent, what we do is we hold up the law. We say, oh, for, for us in our household, it was always just obey mom and dad. Kept it simple. You must obey. You have to. And then they, they wouldn't. And what do you do in that moment as a parent? Do you say, well, it's no big deal. We throw the law out. No, you hold it up as a cold, black and white, unrelenting mirror and a guide and a curve. And you say, you disobeyed. And it's a terrible moment for everybody because you're watching your child experience what you have experienced, which is they're being confronted by their weakness. But you cannot leave them there, right? You hold up the law and you say, yeah, but, okay, this is painful, and I'm, I'm the instrument, part of the instrument of pain, of the consequences of your disobedience. However, I love you, I forgive you, you have a relationship with me, and even though you failed to obey, I have made a way for you to have a relationship with me, even though you failed me. Though you have disobeyed, I love you. And there's the embrace, and there's the grace, and there's the forgiveness that comes after that. And what you have is a picture of the gospel. Law and grace. So you don't drop the law. Some of you are very uncomfortable with that. And some of you are very, you find it very difficult to come in because you feel personally affronted as a parent because they disobeyed you and you have a hard time letting it go. And so you tend to hold a grudge for too long. And you don't embrace them. Both are mistakes. Please don't make Pharisees and please don't make rebellious children that can't submit to you. So you see how, see, the only way to do this as a parent, this is just one example, the only way to do this as a parent is to get it yourself. 
It's the only way. Otherwise, you will respond in the moment in one direction or another and create an imbalance in your children. And they will not see the gospel. That's the consequence. I'm not trying to put a big heavy thing on you. I'm just trying to say this matters. What you believe about law and grace really does matter about what you do. I think it also really connects with just how we relate to each other. So if you're not a parent, I'm not leaving you out. It's easy to see how this connects. We can often treat each other in a way that either sweeps things under the rug or holds others to an impossible standard. We tend to freeze frame others in their worst moment, don't we? I saw you at your worst moment, and that's who you are. I've seen you for who you are. No, you haven't. You just saw a snapshot, and you have frozen. And we want everyone else, right, let's be honest, to freeze frame us in our best moment. Where, we have, where our best intentions were on display and all of our worst parts of us were hidden away. We want everyone to see us that way, but we want to see other people frozen in their worst. And this misunderstands the role of the law and the role of grace in our life. We ourselves need to have our mindset renewed by the gospel. I am not who I am because I worked my way up to this point. You are not, whatever goodness is in you and whatever goodness is in me is not because of me. It is because Christ died on the cross and he declared me to be righteous by his righteousness, not by my own. And he has been working that out in me since that moment. And whatever goodness that comes, whatever good response comes out of me, whatever mercy comes from me, whatever forgiveness comes from me, whatever humility comes out of me, is not because I've tried really hard. It's because he has produced it in me. And so how then can I hold you to a higher standard and say, well, it's not right that you're not being more kind and more generous and more humble and more careful with your words. It's not right. I know I see you for who you are. See, in those moments when the pressure's on you, what will come out of you is what you actually believe about the gospel. When you are squeezed and opposed or snubbed or ignored or hurt, what will squeeze out of you is what you actually believe, not what you say you believe. What your true mindset is will be revealed. That's why it's great when people get on your nerves. Especially people you love, because then you're stuck. You can't go anywhere. It's the worst and the best. I have made a commitment to you as my friend, and therefore, when you get on my nerves, i got to figure it out. And part of figuring it out, or not just part, the way to figure it out is to look at yourself and go, why is grossness coming out of me? Well, that's what you act, that's your real mindset. You have lost sight of grace, or you've lost sight of the truth. This not only does this transform how you see yourself, but it transforms the way you respond to other people. Then you could apply, you could just go all day. Now think about your own life, the way you respond when you fail. It's another great one. When you fail and, ever, and somebody knows it, when you just sin and it was gross and you said a mean thing or you did a mean thing, and it just, and every, and somebody, it's easy when nobody knows, you can just go, well, it's no big deal. 
But when somebody knows it, how fast do you bounce back out of this condemned, self-accusing, miserable state of I'm a worm and a terrible person? How, far do you, how soon do you bounce back to I'm a child of God declared righteous by Jesus? It tells you. It says more about you than the failure does. It's how quickly you can get back under grace. So I think this is what Paul means by the mindset. It's how you see things like your own failure and the failure of other people. And that mindset comes from Christ. It doesn't come from you. So he just says, so act like a Christian. <laughs> act like you're in Christ. Don't act like you're in Adam. So I'd like us to pray together. This is, you know, if this is what it, at least part of what it looks like to live life in the Spirit, then maybe we should ask the Holy Spirit to produce this in us, right? Because you can't just walk out here and say, this is, this is what I'm going to do now. You, you need to understand that this will go into the category of all the other things you have tried to do and then failed at. So there is a desperate position we are all in because Paul does not lower the standard to say, well, okay, you know, we'll just say this is normal. That is not what he's saying. He says, this is what Christ has declared you to be. This is what he has made you to be. And when we find a discrepancy, the way to bridge that is the Holy Spirit. Okay? It is the only way. We are desperate for him to do that. So why don't we stand up and I feel like this is where we end up every week. Just saying, God help me. <laughs> So I'm going to just invite the Holy Spirit to do this, okay? And I want you just to do the same, to, to invite him in to produce more fruit in your life along these lines. Does that make sense? So Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, we ask you, well, first we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us. You have done more than just wipe the slate clean of sin and give us a fresh start. You have recreated us, remade us in your likeness and in your image. And you have given us your good standing with God. And that includes your perfection, your sinlessness. This is what we are and this is who we are becoming all at the same time. It's all held in you. So we thank you. We thank you for what you say about us. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives that you would not only dwell in us, but we would experience the fullness of your power, beginning with how we act and how we think and how we speak to one another, how we feel about one another, how quick we are to repent and how quick we are to forgive. God, that, God, I pray for every parent in this room that they would, God, that this would be a deep revelation in their heart, God, and a complete change of mind, that they would see their children through this lens, God, the lens of the gospel, that, that the law is good and right, and it is a mirror and a guide and a curb to our children. But God, help us not to fail to hold up Christ as the answer to the failure. 
as the definition of who they are. God, that we would have obedient children, but we would not have Pharisees. God, I pray that the truth of your grace would penetrate every heart. God, would you begin with us, Holy Spirit. Bring forth life from us. God, that our story would not be trying and failing, trying and failing, but our story would be overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So Holy Spirit, I pray for miraculous mind shifts, miraculous heart change. God's stories of, as Vic was praying earlier in worship, stories of overcoming very old states of mind, very old wounds, very old addictions, old ways of thinking. God, we want to see the fruit of this be so great and exponential that we can't contain it. God, that you would shape us and form us into who you would want us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.